We're going to be in the first uh, first section there, Matthew four. It's the temptations of Christ. Um, this is a fairly familiar passage. There have been songs written and movies made and uh, thousands of sermons delivered on this short little 11 verses about um, the temptation of Jesus. So our attempt this morning in just a few minutes that we have together is to try to get close enough to this text again to remind ourselves of grand realities for the children of God and uh, wanted to know how much God is for us and what Christ did on our behalf. But let's do this. Let's read it and we'll ask God to open our eyes and then we'll dig in. Verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Let's pray. Lord, help us understand uh, your word. God, I pray you guard my lips. You prepare our hearts to see and perceive Jesus, our Savior, in this, in this passage, to find our hope in it, um, to see our life and salvation in it, I pray. Um, God, there's, there's so much in your word, and so we are dependent on the Spirit to teach us, so we ask for his presence today in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. This is obviously a very important text in Scripture. <clears throat> um, For a couple of categories, one is it clearly paints pictures. It gives us lessons on temptation, doesn't it? It it, uh, shows us the attacks of Satan. I mean, if you want to know what he's up to, if you want to know his ways, his his schemes, you can look at this and you can can lay out an outline of, well, that's kind of what he does. You can also see how the Savior responded to those schemes and you go, well, I'm going to glean lessons from that and try to emulate that and what Christ did in responding to the attacks of the tempter. And all of that is reasonable and you and I probably both have heard hundreds of sermons uh, taking that approach, and, and we'll take a little bit of that approach today. And all of that is really helpful and true, but I, I don't want to start today without telling you that's not the point of the passage. I've, I've tried to describe to you the Word of God like a diamond before, like a diamond has multi-facets. And, and you can keep turning the stone, and you will see another beautiful angle of the stone. And clearly one of the angles of this beautiful story is, is how the, the tempter tempts and how the Savior responds, and we can learn that there. But there's a giant, grander narrative or reality in this passage than just what we can learn from Jesus' example. The main point of this passage 
is that Jesus passed the test where mankind has failed. And I'll just tell you, whenever we get to any narrative where Jesus shows up and where Jesus talks, he is the champion of the story. He's the pinnacle example of how to live and love and have faith and follow and trust and obey. He is that example for us and it's no different in this text. Now, I am not saying that there aren't lessons to learn in dealing with this. It's just that there is so much of a grander play uh, at work here. It's kind of like a story. I tried to illustrate this to my wife. Maybe this helps, but every time to time, <clears throat> one of my sons will come over and say the car's broken, water pump went out or whatever. Now, there's one grand reason. There's a point to them coming over, and that's we got to fix the car, right? There's the grand narrative. But there are other lessons involved in fixing the car, like what tools to use, what methods to use to fix the car, right? You do learn those things, but there's a grander narrative over that whole moment. We're here to fix it. In the grand narrative of this passage, it is Jesus came to fix it. And he succeeded where we cannot. He is the prime example of why he is a perfect righteous sacrifice that satisfies God's righteous standard for our sin. He completed it. And so we, we live in that. So in essence, this is uh, not primarily about lessons to learn. It is about a savior to trust. Do you understand? If you don't understand, I still want you to shake your head like you do understand. So I'm not here alone, okay? All right, good. Perhaps you remember the writer of Hebrews who said this in chapter 2, verse 18. Because he himself, that is Christ, suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Have you heard that before? Perhaps you remember this one, Hebrews four fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Are you familiar with that one? Okay the relatability of Jesus towards our struggle. Now, let me stop and just maybe pose a question that has entered your mind from time to time. If not, I'm sorry, I'm about to put it there. But do you ever wonder about how much Jesus can really sympathize with your weakness? Does it ever cross your mind? He's God. What could he possibly know about a struggle? What could he possibly know about what I deal with? He's God, isn't he? How could he, how could he understand what it is to live with my flinches? He never reacted out of anger or selfishness. He never lived for things or people or possession. He didn't take the second look at the woman. He didn't struggle with that stuff. How, so how possibly could he relate to us? I want to spend just a couple seconds telling you why he relates before we get into the specifics of why this thing is our example. Just because Jesus never gave in to temptation doesn't mean that he doesn't understand the pull, the magnetic pull of temptation. So let me try to describe it this way. One writer I was reading suggested a comparison between two weightlifters. If the project was to clean and jerk 500 pounds, one weightlifter, he would get under the weight and he might manage to, to struggle to get it to his knees only to drop it. He felt the weight of it, right, and failed. The other weightlifter, he gets it to his knees, he gets it to his chest, and he jerks it up. The point that he was making is who knows the, the heaviness of those weights better? Who knows? And his suggestion is that the point is that those who resist temptation are those who feel the weight of it most. It's the one who finishes, right? It's the one who follows through. Jesus' temptation was real. 
And by the way, I want to make certain we leave here with this. He faced it as a man. Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. See, here's what we got to just anchor ourselves to. When Jesus left heaven to become a man, to rescue sinners and restore us back to God, he voluntarily surrendered the independent use of his divine attributes. He set them aside. I give them up. All access to the God power, I'm leaving into his hands. God will tell me when. God will show me when. God will do it in me when. But I'm not independently doing anything on my own. I gave that up. And, And here's where that humbling plays into the weight of Jesus' temptation. Jesus' life was the offering, according to the scriptures, of a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of those who would believe. That's what the scriptures declare about Jesus' work. He actually satisfies God's righteous standard and his wrath for sinners. To anyone who would confess Christ, he actually did it. But in order for him to be the perfect sacrifice, he had to be perfectly obedient, perfectly submissive, and perfectly dependent on his father. If Jesus were to seize control and respond to any of his temptations or anything else he ever faced in his life on his own apart from his father, he wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice. If he went rogue, like we have a tendency to go rogue, he would cease to be righteous, he would cease to be perfect, he would cease to be an offering for sin. All right, the mission would be lost. So before we think that somehow his temptations were less intense, because he's some superhero and he's showing up with these superhuman capacities, I want you to know that that's not true. The only difference between his temptation and our temptation is that Jesus was always obedient. He was always submissive. He was always dependent on his father. He always believed his father. He never believed the lies unlike us. He always chose love instead of selfishness. Do you understand the difference? Face the same temptations, laying aside the access to divinity, always submitting himself to the Father's will and the Father's way and the Father's time, always dependent, did nothing on his own, never went rogue. So he felt the weight of all of it, but he never used sin to respond to it. The difference was he was completely in his Father's hands. Jesus' baptism in chapter 3 of this same uh, book in Matthew, verse 17, perhaps you read the part before. Jesus is being baptized and heavens open up and the Father says from heaven, this is my son whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. Remember that? This is my son. And it's like with those words still ringing in the narrative, you get to chapter 4. Hardly any blank space between his declaration over his son and now what's about to happen in the temptations of Christ. Some of Satan's very first words is, if you're the son of God. God declared from heaven who he was. Satan says, if you're the son of God. In fact, he says it two times to set this temptation up. And the temptation was very simple, to not live as a servant, but to rely on his divine sonship. Go it alone. Do it on your own. All of these temptations were about living like the son now without a cross. Do it, flex it, be it. 
go outside of dependency, go outside of the plan of the Father and do it on your own. Satan was suggesting a shortcut to the kingdom. Just get there. Go around it. And Jesus refused. Again, just to remind you what Paul said, he didn't consider equality to be something that he would use to his own advantage, but he became a servant and he emptied himself, right? That's, that's why this works. So were the temptations real? More real than you could possibly fathom. This was not superhuman Jesus responding to Satan's attacks. This was Jesus, the man Jesus, who laid aside all the advantages of his sonship to bear the weight of the ac accusations and the suggestions only to respond with faith and dependency. Make sense? So, can he relate? Absolutely. Let's do this. Let's look at these three separate temptations that Satan throws at Jesus and, of course, Jesus' three responses. And by the way, if you're writing notes if, and if you don't have a lot uh, of brain power to capture the whole snapshot of a sermon, if you get this next line, you're going to know what this passage is really suggesting. All of these temptations have one central theme, one central, easy-to-spot theme. Don't trust the Father. In fact, I would suggest to you that is the same temptation he uses on every one of us in every particular circumstance you find yourself in, no matter how you're weak or where you're weak. The suggestion comes from him, don't trust God. Don't trust his ways. Don't trust what he does or what he said. Don't trust him. So that should sound familiar to us because uh, that's the game that he's been playing from the very beginning. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, if you pick up your Bible, maybe you're not even familiar with the Bible, but you pick up this book called the Bible and you start to read, typically people will pick it up in the beginning, you can't get to third chapter, and you see Adam, who chooses to hear the very few first suggestion from Satan that somehow God can't be trusted. He's holding out on you. Did God really say? Did he really say you would die? You can't, you can't believe that. Take matters into your own hands. And what happened? The first man, Adam, screwed it for the rest of us. He, he decided to believe that and not trust his father. And that's the same ploy that he's using here. So take matters into your own hands. And that's where these three attacks come from. In fact, they, they were attacks in, in these categories. Jesus, provide for yourself. Jesus, prove yourself. Jesus, promote yourself apart from your father. That's where these attacks come from. Look at the first one. Jesus was to uh, be tempted to provide for himself. Verses two and three, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I confess, I have a hard time skipping a meal. Like I've got spiritual convictions against skipping meals. Um, I can't imagine 40 days and 40 nights. Can't imagine. Back in my old high school days, I used to, I used to starve myself to wrestle. This, this seems to be on the edge of you're not going to survive it if you don't eat soon. So all the physical things screaming at you to solve your problem would be at its height, I think, in this situation. To say that Jesus was hungry is a massive understatement. He's starving, more than hungry. So, Jesus, so Satan plays his game at Jesus' weakest moments. Now, it doesn't say this, but let me just suggest kind of the way it might have gone down. Jesus, does a father really know what he's doing? This doesn't look like love to me. You could solve this. 
He's not going to deliver. He's not going to come through for you. This, this is far too much. This is too much. But Jesus, I care about you. I really care about you. So I know what you can do. I know who you are. I know what you're made of. You could turn to these stones and say, become bread, and you're done. You're done. You're out of the problem. This unrealistic, unmanaged hunger that you're in. This expression of, quote, unquote, God doesn't love you kind of suffering. You can fix it. Take care of yourself because you can't trust him. What was Jesus' response? Verse four. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father's mouth. Now remember, back to what Paul said in Philippians 2, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to take advantage of. He came on a mission to be a servant, to give his life a ransom. That's why he came. In other words, Jesus isn't going to take matters into his own hands, and here's why. Because Jesus knew that real life, only real life, was through the word and the will of the Father and no other way. You might think that bread is a way to life. <laughs> That's not where life is found. It is the word and the will of the Father. It's interesting, by the way, that when Satan tempted the first man, Adam, he couldn't find two more polar experiences and yet two grand differences in response. The first, Adam, we lived in a place called paradise in a garden. My assumptions are he could eat anything. It was all his to eat. My assumptions, he was full. He, he was given one tree not to eat from, one that he didn't need because he could eat anything. And what happened? He fell. Here, Jesus is dealing with or facing what perhaps is the greatest need of all, starvation. You're going to die. And he passed. He chose to trust his father. Contrast, compare. Adam, first Adam, second Adam. Interesting. Look at the second temptation. It was for Jesus to prove himself, verses five and six. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written... He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands and you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus was taken to the temple, the highest point of the temple, out the back porch, 450 feet down, Valley of Kindred, way up there, 50 stories up there. And Satan suggests something very simple, jump. <laughs> in other words, show off. Prove to everyone who you are. Because doesn't the word of God say that, that he will hold you up, he will lift you up, he will protect you? So just prove it now. Come out loud now and tell everybody who you are. Right? If, and I think this is how he's playing it, Jesus throws this passage, man will not live by bread alone, but on the word of God, Satan was it, he does. He grabs the word of God and sticks it in Jesus' face and said, well, if that's true, if you believe the word of God, didn't it say this? So jump. Jump and show it. If Jesus did, or as Satan suggested, he, he would have been public proof of who he was, clearly. But Jesus knew that Satan was twisting the words of God by removing from the conversation all the words of God, of which verse 7 shows us, right? Clearly, his response was this. It is also written, Satan, do not put the Lord your God to the test." Pretty simple, I think. Uh, his response was, you're a liar, you're a deceiver, and you're twisting the words of God. 
So let's just get this straight. We don't test God, okay, Satan? That's not what we do. We don't, we don't do stupid things under the name of faith or somehow testing God to prove who he is. That's not how it works. Expecting the Father to fix our dumb decisions. That's not faith. As someone once said, faith isn't demonstrated when we test God. It's, it's demonstrated when we trust him. And I, I think that's true. And I think Jesus is saying that here. Oh, and, and I want you to know another thing. Satan, you're suggesting that I prove myself. I make myself known by a, like a supernatural event. Like I throw myself off and all the angels show up. Who wouldn't recognize that I'm the son of God through that means? But I want you to understand something. The Father's will is that I'm not proved by public display like that. The Father's will is I'm proved by suffering and a resurrection. When I'm going to be known as the savior of the world is when everyone wants to reject me. Because who, who wants a dying servant? Who wants a suffering savior? The father wants to put me on display in pain. He wants to put me on display at a crucifixion. So you want me to get, you want me to get notoriety without it? <laughs> the father says you'll be on display in the trouble. Look at the third temptation from Satan. It was for Jesus to promote himself without a cross. Verses eight and nine. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Satan simply suggests, suggests to Jesus that he could skip the suffering. Jesus, you can be king without it. You, you can be king without all this. You, you can have all the good and none of the bad. J just one little condition. <laughs> Bow down and worship me. And, and all the good, none of the bad. And I have to assume that Satan's temptations are tempting. What, it's, what it was was, Jesus, here's a shortcut. You have in your mind this, this weight of the world's sin. You have this on your mind, the wrath of God poured out on you. You, you have the, the whole picture in play. That's why you came. You left heaven, came to earth to give your life a ransom. You know what's about to happen, but we can skip all that bad stuff. We can just get to the throne. We can just get to the kingdom. We can give you recognition without suffering. We can give you a kingdom, a kingdom without a cross. Look at Jesus' response, verse 10. Away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I think there's way more punch in that phrase, away from me, Satan. I think he's fed up at this point at the attacks, the lies, the deceptions, the suggestions that somehow God isn't worthwhile of trust and he commands him to leave because any thought of worshiping anything other than the Father and submitting to the Father, no matter how the outcome, no matter how wonderful it could be for him, was blasphemy. His love for his Father, his love for his Father's will was greater than the attraction of something less painful. Like, I get it. Like, you, you present somehow a kingdom without suffering. Well, that sounds better than the alternative, right? It sounds better than having to be punished and buried under the weight of sinners for generations. That sounds easier, right? I get why it would be attractive, but not an option. The word and the will of the Father was greater than any painless existence for Jesus. 
If we're honest with ourselves, Satan offered, uh, what he offered was the right thing. Jesus, you could rule the kingdoms. Well, he is going to be the king of the world. He is the king of the world. He just offered the wrong way. Skip the cross to get there. If you want to know how Jesus overcame temptation, it's not very complicated. He loved his father, and he loved his father's will more than anything else. Hopefully you're taking mental notes here. If Satan's attacks are you can't trust him, you can't trust the Father, then how do I overcome? How do I ever work on this? Well, somehow the affections that Jesus had for the Father and his will were greater than any other affection. It was the greater good in his mind. He knew he didn't have to provide for himself because he knew his Father, and he knew his Father would. He knew he didn't have to prove himself or promote himself in any other way other than the eternal plan of God for him to give his life a ransom for many to become victorious over sin and death. He knew that's how God would make a name for him. So it's clear what Satan was doing. It's even more clear why Jesus didn't respond to the temptation. So let's stop and just ask ourselves what what can we actually glean and run with in our own life in this story. And I'm gonna, (coughs) excuse me, I'm going to split this between some obvious comparisons and then this grand narrative that supersedes everything else. I would suggest to you to look back at verse 1, and something is inescapable here, that God is involved in temptation in this way. He allows it. Look at the verse, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the who? Spirit. Into the wilderness to be tempted by who? (laughs) led by the spirit, tempted by the devil. Anybody confused? Somehow the role that God plays in this is that we are led by the spirit and Satan does the the bad work in this. In fact, uh, the word tempted in the text is truly another word as well. It's tested, so the idea here is that it's, it's being used by God. James 1, verse 13 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Anybody confused what God doesn't do? He doesn't tempt anyone, but he does allow it. And he led, he led Jesus into the wilderness to go under that testing, that temptation from Satan. He allows it for our growth and to reveal our dependency. If I were to pull out from the scriptures a a story that we're probably all most familiar with, you could say, well, let's look at Job. I mean, Job is an interesting read. What we know of Job is that he was considered a righteous man, and and so much so that somehow in the context of of the throne room of God, the angels have come to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan's tagging along with them. And Satan says, hey, or God says to Satan, have you considered Job? There isn't anybody like him. He's a righteous man. He does what's good. And Satan then suggests, well, that isn't for no reason. I mean, you've put a hedge around his life. You've blessed him like crazy. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't like, honor you if you made him a rich man? And therein lies this interesting little play between the father and Satan. And the father says, okay, if you want to sift him, you can sift him. He takes his family and he takes his possessions. Ultimately, that event happens again. He eventually takes his health, all of it, all of it, to show a righteousness not dependent on circumstances, 
but one that trusts the Father, of which was an opportunity for Job. James 1 says, consider it, that's why we are to consider it pure joy when you encounter trials, tests, temptations of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance, when it's finished its work, will make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's a direction with testing. There is a proving and a growing that goes into this, right? A maturity that happens out of it. God does not tempt, according to James, but he does allow it. Not so that you and I will know what we're made of. So that he will know, like somehow God will figure us out after he watches us go through a struggle. He already knows what you're made of. He already knows where you're weak. He already knows what decisions you will be inclined to. He, he does it for your benefit so that you know where your struggles are, where you know uh, where you need to be humbled and where trust needs to grow, right? That's, that's the goal of it. God allows it, led by the Spirit, tempted by the devil. Let me give you another observation possibly that I think are universal to uh, what Jesus went through and what we go through. Temptations always come at our weakness, let me just say it another way. You will never be surprised. Some people feel like they're attacked in a blind side. That doesn't happen. You're attacked where you got a chink in your armor. He's not that smart or that sophisticated. He's going to go the path of least resistance. He comes at our weakness. Jesus was hungry and alone. What do you think he came after? Food and recognition. When we struggle with doubt, fear, when we struggle with contentment issues or joy, like a joylessness in our life, I'm going to suggest something, and maybe you can uh, just affirm it in your own spirit. I, I think it's true, generally true. Isn't when we struggle with those things always when we're walking in our own desert, far from God? Isn't it when, like, when we're doing our thing, like, I have these propensities to sin. I've got certain ones that I feel like I'm going to fight until God glorifies me. But whenever they show themselves and they seem uncontrollable, whenever I get into them and fail in them, they're always in a place where I am in a desert far from God. They don't come in the middle of a Bible study. They, they don't come when I'm somehow confessing my sin in worship. It's not when it happens. It happens when I think I got this, when I'm doing all right, when I'm getting busy doing good things, just doesn't include the Father. So they always come at our weakness. So um, don't be surprised that Satan shows up sometime in your future to suggest to you that you, you, you fix what's broken. Do it on your own. Go outside of the will and the way of the Father and you make a way. He does that. Let me give you another reality. Um, all temptations, every single one of them. I don't care if you're a student in high school or junior high school. I don't care if you're a young adult. I don't care if you're a parent of young kids. I don't care if you're retired. I don't, I don't care where you are in the spectrum of life and living. All temptations are the same. They all offer life without a cross. That's what they do. Maybe unique to you, your version of life, your definition of life, but somehow Satan suggests you'll be happier doing that. You'll be more fulfilled if you do this. 
You'll find more future in that. You'll, you'll have this joy in this. That's what he suggests. Life without a cross. Temptations are always a suggestion from the evil one that God's word is too restrictive. That somehow it isn't enough. It is the attack that Satan had in the garden. It's the attack he does today that God's holding out on you. He's trying to keep you from good. If he really had your best interest in mind, he would include these things that you desperately want for yourself. And life, life can be found apart from him. Now, I'm not saying how formal those words ring in your head, but that's exactly what's going on. When you're tempted to take what doesn't belong to you, you're convinced that what you don't own that should be yours will be the version of finding happiness and joy. And you just fill in your own examples. It's exactly how it goes down. That that person, place, or thing will bring some sense of contentment. As an illustration in Matthew 16, Jesus, at the end of his ministry life, is getting closer and closer to the very crystal narrative of what he's about to do. Now, if I back up to the big picture of this gospel story we have, when he's calling the disciples to follow him, there is no doubt in their minds the idea of a wrong Messiah. A Messiah that would be a political ruler that would free them from the tyranny of Rome and put them in a position of power and success. I mean, they had in their minds, like all good Hebrew people did, the Messiah will be some kind of ruler that liberates us. Now, he is, but we see it through the lens of sin. They saw it through the lens of like their life then and now. And I think closer that Jesus got to the end of his life, he became more and more clear and more clear. In fact, there was a time when he is talking about the suffering that was about to come. And it was Peter who interrupted the conversation and said, oh, stop, Jesus, stop. No more of this conversation about suffering. That doesn't fit at all with our narrative. We would way prefer, we would way prefer just to take over and do well. And Jesus' response to Peter was, you, you, get behind me. Get, get behind me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must pick up their cross and follow me. And I suppose that's something to ring in our heads this morning in order for us to have life. We have to die. Die to ourselves, die to our wills, die to our way, die to our word and rest in the life that Jesus provides alone. All temptations, all they are doing is suggesting to you for a brief moment in time that you can have life without dying that somehow your sin isn't that big of a deal and your problems are easy to solve. All you gotta do is get this, have that, buy that, sleep with this, and you will have life. And it's all a lie. It's all the temptation. The reason why it works is you prefer not to die. If you wanted to die, if you wanted to suffer like Christ and take up your cross and follow him, then you would gladly walk away from the easy way. But the reason why it's so attractive to us, the reason why it's always worked in humanity is because nobody wants to die. No, nobody wants to say no to themselves or admit their need or call themselves a sinner who have broken the words of God, who is desperately deserving of wrath and judgment, who ultimately wants grace. Nobody wants to go the hard way. But that's exactly what it says. Let me just add a couple more and we're done. The example that Jesus leaves us to follow is the example of love. Jesus said no for the reason of love. 
No to providing for myself. No to proving myself. <laughs> no to promoting myself. And the reason why is because of love. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those, get this, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Why did he die? <laughs> so you don't have to do it the old way. And you don't have to continue to live for yourself. You can live for the will and the, and the way of the Father. Saying no to yourself. One last thing, and this is where I get to the grand narrative of this passage, the one we celebrate, the one we'll move into communion with. And I think it's just so profound. It's so awesome that God continues to ring the bell of his work for sinners that they wouldn't do for themselves over and over again. But let me just say this one last time. The temptation of Christ really is a story more of our failure and his victory than anything you're to emulate. Do, do I want us to see the tactics of the devil? Absolutely. Do I want us to respond by faith in the Father and not believe the lie that God can't be trusted? Absolutely. But there's a bigger, bigger narrative. You and I have failed a thousand times this week. So the grand narrative that I want you to embrace today is that where we fail, Jesus didn't. He completed his test. So, the point of the story isn't to show us how to pass some test of temptation, although I think there are things here to learn. It's showing us that he passed it for us. There, there's a powerful parallel in the scriptures. I don't have time to go into very much, but I think it's worth at least teasing. And that is this 40 days of, and nights of fasting for Jesus and the 40 years of wandering for Israel. So let me try to paint this quick picture before we uh, pray. Um, you know, I'm certain you know the story of, of, of Israel enslaved in Egypt. God delivers his people. Off they go to the promised land and they spend, because of lots of reasons, wandering the desert for 40 years. And in those 40 years, the people of God who have clearly witnessed the power of God and the deliverance of God all, multiple times, they get hungry. Sound familiar? Starving. And they start complaining. And they start questioning whether God's going to deliver them. I'm certain those are the suggestions that Satan put in Jesus' mind when he was starving. Will God the Father, can he be trusted? Will he deliver? And they complain and they whine and they even suggest, let's go back to slavery. Let's go back to Egypt. Being there under bondage was better than being here having to trust him for our life. They failed that test where Jesus passed that test. In that story as well, Israel wanders the desert for 40 years. They become thirsty from time to time, obviously a desert. And they complain and they whine. And their conclusion again is it's better to be home, home in slavery, than trusting the Father. Um, so God, in spite of their lack of faithfulness, uh, allows Moses to take his staff and strike a rock and outpours water that the people of Israel... Um, drink from. And isn't it interesting, all these parallels of the gospel and narrative, Jesus is described in the scriptures as the rock that was struck where streams of living water pours from that feeds every thirsty soul. There is, there is an arrival with Christ 
that satisfies everything the tempter is suggesting that you do to find peace and joy apart from God and his word. And life is only found in the living water who is Jesus, the rock who is truly struck for us. And here's the point. The good news that we talk about all the time doesn't say be better. It says trust Christ. The story is about his success and his willingness to obey and believe the Father where we can't or we haven't. So if, if talking about struggles and temptations and failure makes you just kind of rewind all of your punky life, okay, I'm sorry. But if at the end of that we get to say Jesus saves and Jesus redeems and he restores, it's a better good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story and what it screams at us, that you are to be trusted and Satan is to be shunned. He needs to be called out for what he is, a deceiver and a liar. So God, I pray for us that we would see the victory of Christ on our behalf and celebrate the work um, that he accomplished when he trusted you all the way through with his life. God, as we come to the communion table, help us see the provision of Jesus, the work of Christ, and your affections for sinners like us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.